Hello, my name is Cary Grant. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. After 30 years of ministry, I have lost the amazing gift of verbal speech. I have a condition called abductor spasmodic dysphonia, which leaves me unable to make sounds with my vocal cords. I am speaking to you through an app called ProLoquo for text. We like to refer to it as my technology. Although, verbally silent for five years now, there is still so much I need to say. This podcast is a collection of sermons I preached before becoming silent, as well as conversations I want to have with you. I would encourage you to visit my website, silentlywaiting.com. On the website you can read my blog and find resources that might help you grow in your walk with Christ. Thank you for listening and please email me if you have any questions about the sermon or if I can help you in your spiritual journey. Up today our study of Revelation 2 and 3, these churches that we've been looking at, considering the warnings from our Lord Jesus. There are seven letters, but we've been talking about five of the churches. We'll talk about the last of the churches today, the church of Laodicea. And we, we've been asking ourselves, basically, how, how to keep our church alive. Because if you look at the warnings, if you look at how Jesus, what Jesus said when he sent these letters to these churches, he basically said things, things need to change or I'm, I'm closing you down. Now that's a scary thought to think that there are congregations that are so useless to Christ, they might as well not even exist. And we never want that to be said of us. We never want that kind of thing to be said of Maranatha, that, yeah, we we may have doors open and lights on, but we might as well not exist. And each of the churches that we've talked about so far have helped us to see different aspects of what we really ought to be doing and what we ought to be as a church. We ought to be loving. You see, the church at Ephesus had left their first love. They, they had started as a, as a vibrant ministry, and yet along the way, the machinery kept running, but the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ was gone. From the church at Pergamos and Thyatira, we learned that there, there are some things we can't tolerate. We can't to- tolerate indifference. We can't tolerate immorality. From the church at Sardis, we learned that we need to be watchful, to be alert. Because it was like Ichabod and it was like Samson. The Spirit of God had departed. They didn't even know it. They, again, Everything was functioning fine. But God wasn't there. They were, Jesus said, dead. There were a few who were still doing right and standing. But for the most part, they were dead. Today, we're going to be considering the church of Laodicea. And of course, the church... Um, each of these churches is recognized by the name of the city in which it is located. 
They didn't have uh, Glentford Bible Church or Thornville Baptist Church. They had the church in Sardis and church in Laodicea. This particular church is especially troubling. I mean, we, we, we've seen some pretty harsh criticism from our Lord for these other churches. I mean, when Jesus says you're dead, you're dead, right? And he's talking to their church, you're, you're just dead. Not everybody, but most of you're just dead. The Pergamus and Thyatira, they were, they were letting immorality into the church and tolerating it among the members. And, and Jesus said, no, I can't do that. We've seen some pretty harsh criticism and some pretty negative descriptions of churches, but when we come to Laodicea, Jesus says, you make me sick. He said, when I, when I think of you, my first response is to vomit. A little bit about Laodicea. And again, just like we talked about in Sart with the church at Sardis last week, some of the geography might help us, or some of the culture might help us to understand a little bit about the thinking and culture of the church. Laodicea was like Sardis in that it was a, a business district and it was a, a successful economic city, economically successful city. History tells us that the shepherds who, who sold their sheep in Laodicea and sold, or sold their wool, and they actually bred a certain kind of sheep that could not be found in any place other than Laodicea. And, and these sheep grew a, a silky, fluffy, black wool that could not be found anywhere else and so it was extremely expensive and it it was part of what made Laodicea so economically successful and again as you look through how our Lord rebukes and warns he he says you you don't need you don't need the black wool of the sheep you need the white raiment of the Savior Another thing that Laodicea was known for was, was for its medicine. They had advanced medically there. They had developed an eye salve that was well known and expensive because it, it would heal eye diseases, which is why Jesus says you need to anoint your eyes with eye salve so you can see clearly. So it was economically successful, medically advanced. The fields, the farms around Laodicea were, were prosperous and 
excavations have found coins that were that were minted for Laodicea. Just and, and, and one of the symbols of the city of Laodicea was a cornucopia full and brimming and bursting over with, uh, with harvest foods, depicting the, the success and the bounty of Laodicea. And just like America and other places around the world, the culture of the place where the church was located had in fact infiltrated the church. A.W. Tozier said, when a church reflects more of the culture around us than it does the Christ within us, we're useless. That's what you see happening in Laodicea. I want to say a couple of things about how Jesus describes himself in this text, and then we'll, we'll move further into the message. But look at how the Lord Jesus describes him, himself. Chapter 4, look at verse number, or excuse me, chapter 3, look at verse number 18, or verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the, the Amen, Amen. Now why would Jesus give himself that name? Well, because of what Amen means. Amen is an affirmation. It, is, it basically means so be it or let it be. So when Jesus says that he is the Amen, he is essentially saying, I am the one who affirms everything that is true about the one who sent me. Let it be true in my life what is true about God. He describes himself as the faithful and true witness. Again, he tells the truth and is faithful in doing so. He's never going to fail to do so in telling the truth about God. Let whatever is true about God be true in my life, Jesus says. And I'm always going to tell you the truth about God. I'm always going to tell you the truth about what God says and what God thinks. So as Jesus is speaking, he is essentially saying, yeah, I'm giving you the words, but I'm telling you what God says. So in essence, you better listen. You better listen. He says, I know thy works. And by the way, he said that to each of these churches. He knows our works as well. That thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert, or I wish you were, either cold or hot. Now we're going to come back in just a minute and explain more clearly what he means by that. But let me just say this. 
He is not saying, I want you on fire. Because if he's saying, I want you on fire for the Lord, he's also saying, I would rather you be cold for the Lord. Okay, And he doesn't want that. But what he's, he's, he's saying to this city, I want you, and this church I should say, <coughs> I want you to be useful to me. And you'll see what I mean by that as we work our way through the message this morning. He uses the imagery of water, of drinking, through this text. And that's going to apply and help us to understand these hot and cold terms in just a little while. But when he speaks of the thirst and when he speaks of water, he isn't saying, I want you thirsty for prosperity. I want you thirsty for success. No, he's saying, I want you thirsty for me. Let's talk about their awful condition. And it is sad. It is truly a sad condition for a church. Look at how he describes them in, in verse number 17, or at least how, what he says they think about themselves. And let me just read it to you, you know, in, uh, this way. You say, in other words, this is what you're saying about yourself. You say, I'm rich. You say, I've acquired wealth. You say, I don't need anything. So what, is he, what do they think about themselves? They think, first of all, that they're rich. Now, the word rich here doesn't mean that they just have enough and a little to live on. This means that they thought of themselves as being wealthy, opulent in their lifestyle. In other words, they were depending on their finances for their function. They had more trust in their money than they had in their God. And the next idea, we are increased, we are prosperous, means not only are we wealthy, we're adding to it. So we must be okay, right? Don't we tend to think of rich people sometimes? Okay. Don't we think of people who have a lot of money as somehow God just blessed them more than he blessed us? And maybe even envy? Envy what they have and can't understand why we don't have it. Well, that wasn't the case in Laodicea. They had it. And they were trusting it. And they were parading it. So much so that their attitude was we don't need anyone or anything. We've got everything under control. We have everything taken care of. 
Again, like we've seen with these other churches, what they thought to be reality really wasn't. Sardis had a reputation of being alive, but Jesus said, you're dead. Laodicea was trusting in visible success. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you make me sick. You're neither hot nor cold. Now what does he mean by those expressions? The explanation of this idea of being hot and cold has to do with, and it's, it's a picture that the Laodiceans would have, it would have been vivid and, and so realistic for them. It actually has to do with the water supply that fed into the city of Laodicea. You see on this map, three cities. Laodicea, which is where the letter is. Hierapolis and Colossae. Two other churches, by the way, that will receive letters from the Apostle Paul. Or where letters from Paul will be sent. For churches that are there. These churches aren't very far from one another. These cities aren't very far from one another. First of all, when we, when we consider the, the, the city of Colossae, this area, and you can see maybe from, from the map itself, this is, this is a mountainous area. You have rivers, you have, you have travel routes that are running through here. Colossae is actually built up on the top of an 8,000 foot mountain, all right? It's way, it's steep. To get water into these cities, they had to build aqueducts and, 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 and route water. Well, the city of Colossae, the aqueduct and the water that came into that city came from mountain streams. You ever had a drink out of a mountain stream? You may be carrying a bottle of plastic with some water in it, it may say mountain spring water. Don't believe it, all right? <laughs> the water that was being fed into the city of Colossae through the aqueducts out of the mountains was famous for being cold and refreshing. Then you have Hierapolis. Hierapolis is, again, nearby, um, not far from these other two cities. The water system that fed into Hierapolis <laughs> came out of hot mountain springs, springs that bubbled up from the ground and they were warm and and, and the, the water was fed into the city of Hierapolis. And it was actually known, the water of Hierapolis was known for its healing power. Because it was like bathing in a spa. So you have the city of Colossae. You have cold, refreshing water. The city of Hierapolis. Warm, reviving springs. Then you have Laodicea. 
excavations have been done and, and the water, the aqueducts, the pipes that brought the water into the city of Laodicea have been found to be coated with mineral deposits. And the water that fed through those began in, in warm springs like Heropolis, but as it fed through those, those aqueducts and those mineral deposits, it cooled to a tepid temperature. And when it reached the final destination, it was undrinkable. Laodicea was not a place you would go for a refreshing drink or for reviving dip in a warm spring pool. You couldn't drink the water in Laodicea because it made you physically sick. It was repulsive. It was revolting. So when Jesus says to the Laodiceans, when I think about you, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of your water. You may think you've got everything together. You may think everything is fine because you're looking on the outside, Jesus says, you know what? I'm looking on the inside. And when I see the inside, you make me want to vomit. Now, now let's, just, let's just think about that. Jesus has warned Thyatira and Pergamos against idolatry and against immorality. And that's, that's pretty wicked stuff. And yet he's also said, but, but you know what? Turn to me, repent. There's still hope. He said to Ephesus, remember the first works. Return, repent. There's hope. He said to even Sardis, you have a few that aren't dead. Build on that. When he says to Laodicea, you literally make me sick. When you compare it to what he said to those other churches, I mean, do you want to be a church that makes Jesus puke? Of course not. Why, then, is the question, would Jesus have such a strong reaction to a church that on the surface seems to be doing very well? And I think the answer is this. They didn't know how sick they were. They didn't know how sick they were. They had an arrogant self-sufficiency that Jesus says has to go. 
So how does the Lord advise them? How does the Lord counsel them? Verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. For a church that makes God sick, God displays a tremendous amount of love here. God displays a tremendous amount of grace here. Because we know that there have been other places where God has said, come by without Money. When he says come buy gold, they could have afforded physical gold, but not the kind of gold that God is offered, offering. They didn't have enough money for that. This is completely and totally a display of the grace of God. I'm offering you gold. I'm offering you white raiment. I'm offering you healing for your blindness. And again, what God is offering them is what they already thought they had, but it hadn't come from Him. So not only do they need grace, they need God. They need God. That brings us to the imagery of verse number 20. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Now, he's writing to a church. This, this verse is not about salvation. It's not about that. I mean, the same thing could be said of those who need Christ. He's on the outside. He wants on the inside. And the only way for Jesus to come into your life is through repentance and faith. Yes, the same thing could be said about salvation, but this isn't a salvation text. He's writing to a church. And he's saying, I'm on the outside, but I want to come in. That's grace because God can say, you know what? I'm on the outside. I'm going somewhere else. But no, he says, I want to come in because I want you with me. Wow. God wants, Christ wants us to fellowship with Him. You see, they were trusting in themselves. They were sufficient in themselves. And Jesus says, no, you need me to come in. So listen. Can you hear? Can you hear the knocking? 
Can you hear the pleading? Jesus says, I want to come in. I want to fellowship. I want to sit down with you. I want to eat with you. You need me. You need me. Read a book a number of years ago. The title of the book was called Practical Atheists. Everybody in this room believes in God, right? We even, most of us would say, or if not all of us would say, I'm a part of the family of God. The point of the book, (coughs) Practical Atheists, was simply this. We may say it, but we don't live like it. We live without a consciousness of God around us. We live as if we are an atheist. We've, we, we leave God out of everything. It, we live as if He is on the outside and we're trying to make life work our way. We're trying to be successful Without God, we're trying to be happy without God. We're trying to have good families without God. We're trying to make it at work without God. We may say we're a part of His family. We may be a part of His family. But our lives don't reflect that. Again, you know, I, I love you, and I, 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 I'm going to sound like I'm fussing, but I probably am. All right, so let me, let me just say a couple of things. Do you know how we verbally express how much we need God? There's a word for that. Do you know what that word is? Prayer. Prayer is a verbal expression basically saying, Lord, I need you. So let's let's just talk about how prayer reflects how much we as a church show God how much we need Him. See where I'm going? When's the last time you came to prayer meeting? To verbally say to God, we need you here. When's the last time you did that in your own prayer life? God, help my church. You know what? I am completely and totally unashamed to say this to you. I beg you to pray for me. I need you to pray for me. Because I need God. And when's the last time you did? I know some of you pray for me every day. I know that. Thank you. 
I was preaching down in Simpsonville, South Carolina, which is right next to Greenville, which is right where there's a major Christian university that some of us graduated from, supposed to be, and it is a, a, a good area, great churches. The, the church where I was in, I was preaching on the subject of prayer, and I talked about praying for your pastor, and I said, how many of you, and, and, and as, it was, as part of the message just said, how many of you pray for pastor every day? And, and of course, you know, I wasn't asking for a show of hands, but in the invitation, a man came forward. And after the service, he came and talked to me. He said, you know, I'm a deacon in this church. I'm a Sunday school teacher in this church. And I say to my church and my Sunday school class, you ought to pray for your pastor. He said, you know what? I realized I hadn't done that for years. How much do we need God? Well, we really can't function without Him, and you know that. And we don't need Him just for our finances. We don't need Him just to build numbers. We, we, we don't need God for just what He will do for us. We need God because He's God. But when's the last time you gathered with your church family to tell him that? I love Psalm 42. And some of us need to pray that God would do this for us as the deer pants for the water. So panteth my soul after, as, as the deer is desperately thirsty. Desperately thirsty. So I want to be desperately thirsty for God. My soul is thirsty for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat and day and night while continue, continually others are saying and even my, my own soul is saying, where is God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For... I had gone with a multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept the holy days. So if we just took that one practice of prayer alone, and we had to judge ourselves honestly before God based on the practice of corporate prayer. Are we making Jesus sick? Because we are trying to function as if we really don't need Him. You see, part of the problem for us 
is I do think we don't know how much we need God. And again, not just for what He can do, but because of who He is. So let's conclude with this thought. Do you really know how much you need God and His grace? Or are you going about, are we going about our lives and maybe even successfully going about our lives living as practical atheists? Doing our thing leaving God out while he stands at the door and he says, hey, I want to come in. I, I, I do, I want to come in. Let's bow for prayer, please.